Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 205, St. Edmund the Martyr. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, the members are listening to a Shop Talk episode where co-producer Z and I are discussing Ragnar's death song and how cultural imaginaries impact how we view and study history. You can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Carl, Sarah, and Tom for signing up already. Last episode, we ended with the engagement of Prince Alfred to Aylswith, daughter of Elderman Athelred Musel of Mercia, and also a descendant of King Conewulf of Mercia. And I briefly mentioned the political implications of such a match. But there was also a personal aspect to this as well. Not the marriage itself, though that was certainly personal. So personal, in fact, that we have no real knowledge of how Alfred felt about his wife. We know how he felt about his piles. We know how he felt about hunting. We know quite a bit about his feelings on a variety of things, but not about his wife. Now, it's entirely possible that he was desperately in love with his wife, and the silence in the record was just part of the culture at the time, and one didn't speak about such things. But the fact remains, we don't know much about how he or Aylesworth felt about the marriage. But that being said, their feelings weren't the personal aspect I was speaking about. Rather, it was Alfred's social status. While Alfred appears to have been involved in court since a young age, even learning at his father's side, the construction of Anglo-Saxon life meant that, on a social level, even after he reached the age of maturity, he wasn't fully an adult until he was married and he had a household of his own. So the marriage to Aylesworth would have been Alfred's full coming of age, at least according to his culture. If he didn't yet have a staff of retainers and nobles who were serving him, then he would following this marriage. After this event, Alfred was, without a doubt, a full member of the court, with all the advantages and responsibilities that that job entailed. And to celebrate, there was the actual wedding. And weddings meant feasting. And considering that it was such an important union between one of the only two surviving sons of King Athelwulf of Wessex and a noblewoman of Mercia, it would have been quite the occasion. And if I've taught you anything, it should be that the Anglo-Saxons knew how to party. This would have been an extravaganza of gift-giving, feasting, storytelling, more feasting, singing, games, and did I mention feasting? And while we don't have a recipe list, we've already spoken for literally hours about the sorts of foods the Anglo-Saxons had on hand. And for such an important occasion, the best and brightest of Wessex would have been out there preparing dishes. It would have been a hell of a night. And then day. And then night again. Something like this usually lasted for several days. And it would have been an excellent opportunity for the influential members of the two families to get to know each other and bond. Social bonding was really a major aspect of these ceremonies. And I can't imagine this wedding without an image of a feasting hall filled to the rafters with shit-faced noble members of the Hearthworld who are tearing up a bit, slapping each other on the back and saying, Ich luffy thay, which is Anglo-Saxon for, 
I love you. So this would have been one hell of a weekend. But another thing that we've learned about Alfred was that he was conflicted when it came to his carnal desires. And so my guess is that you're wondering if Alfred got performance anxiety and prayed for an illness to tamp down his sexual urges like he did when he was a kid. We don't know. But what we do know is that at some point during the festivities, he became terribly ill. Suddenly, Alfred's abdomen was racked with pain that was so intense he wasn't able to focus, and he was forced to leave his own wedding feast. The pain was all-consuming, and as a result, it was completely debilitating. To make matters worse, the doctors had no idea what it was, nor could they find a way to relieve his pain. There were even rumors that it was caused by an evil spell. No one knew what was happening to the prince. It was a condition that would last for the rest of his life. And most scholars believe that, because of the timing and his symptoms, Alfred was manifesting full-blown Crohn's disease, right in the middle of his wedding. Now, as is the way with a lot of autoimmune diseases, a flare can be triggered by stress. And let's face it, given the way Alfred's life had been going, and what had just happened in Snottingham, it's shocking that it took this long for his immune system to sucker punch him in the gut. But it seems that the several days of feasting and heavy drinking were the final straw, and his immune system came for him with a vengeance. For the rest of his life, Alfred would be haunted by a malady that would devastate his body with fevers, diarrhea, and mind-bending pain. And the worst part was that it would come without any apparent cause, meaning that Alfred would forever live in fear for when the pains would return, and he would once again be rendered virtually infirm. It was a terrible blow for a young prince, but it had even bigger repercussions than just his emotional state. Consider what the assembled nobles would have thought, as well as Alfred's new bride. The sons of King Athelwolf didn't exactly have a reputation for long lives. And here was the youngest child of Athelwolf, who was so sickly that he collapsed in the middle of his own wedding. And he was the heir to the kingdom of Wessex, should King Athelred fall. It's really tempting when you read this stuff to just view this event through the eyes of Alfred. But once Alfred was rushed off to bed and the doctors were summoned, I can only imagine that the feasting hall must have exploded into a clamor of anxious voices, all wondering what this meant for Wessex, what this meant for Mercia, what this meant for all of them. The West Saxons had a long history of infighting, and it was only thanks to the line of Egbert that they hadn't fallen into civil war the way the Northumbrians so often did. But here was the second in line to the throne, and the only real viable successor to King Athelred, because Athelred's sons were either infants or not even born yet, and he was so frail, he couldn't even make it through his own wedding. They were at war, and they needed a war leader. The West Saxon kings led men into battle. They didn't stay home in bed because they were sick. This was a disaster, and war was coming. Far to the north, in Jorvik, sat King Ivor the Boneless, Ubba, Halfdan, and the great heathen army, 
Thanks to the disaster at Snottingham, the Danes now knew exactly how weak their Anglo-Saxon counterparts were. Despite drawing all the men from both Wessex and Mercia and presenting what amounted to almost the entire combined military strength of the South, they were still unable to best the Danes. So clearly, they had nothing to fear from these Southerners. East Anglia refused to put up a fight and handed over everything, even their own horses, when they were pressed. And as for Mercia and Wessex, they couldn't even muster the courage to storm across an earthen embankment. These were not warriors. They were slaves. They just didn't know it yet. But if Ivor had anything to do with it, they would learn. The Chronicle tells us that in 869, mere months after Alfred's wedding, the gates of Jorvik opened, and the great heathen army marched south under the command of Ivor the Boneless and his brother, Ubba. It wasn't long before they crossed the border and entered into Mercia. Now, King Burgred had faced off with these same warriors just one year earlier, and that time he had been joined by his brother-in-law and the army of Wessex. And even then, even with all those forces at his command, he was still no match, and he had to severely tax his kingdom just to get the Danes to leave. So the fact that these pagans had returned so soon, and in such large numbers, must have been terrifying. If Ivor marched on Tamworth, what could Burgred do other than flee? He couldn't hope to defeat him in battle. And as for another Danegeld, if that only bought less than a year of peace, what good was it? If the Danes were looking for war with Mercia, Burgred was f***ed. Luckily for Burgred, though, the Danes don't appear to have been interested in Mercia. Yet. Instead, they had their eyes set on a different prize and simply intended to march through Mercia. Which, of course, King Burgred allowed, likely while holding his breath. And after passing through Lindsay, they swung left and into the kingdom of East Anglia. King Edmund's territory. The lands of those same people who had housed and provisioned the great army when they first began their trek north. Though, in the defense of the East Anglians, it wasn't like they had much of a choice. Now, as you'll probably recall, King Edmund of East Anglia had essentially bankrupted his kingdom to get the pagans to agree to leave. And they did leave. But, apparently, that deal only lasted for three years. Because now they were back in force. But for what purpose? Well, according to Abo of Fleury who was writing about a century later, and who has some significant problems in his account, which I'll get to in a minute. But according to him, King Ivor the Boneless was looking towards hegemonic domination of Britain. He wanted to partition a part of East Anglia and share it out. And as for the remainder of it, that could continue to be ruled by King Edmund of East Anglia, provided that he served as a subject of King Ivor just like King Egbert of Northumbria was serving. It seems to me that Ivor had his eyes set upon Imperium. The trouble, though, is that King Edmund of East Anglia had no interest in being a client king. And you can kind of see why. That Danegeld had all but broken the back of East Anglia, 
And, as was common in these sorts of arrangements, at the end of it, the Danes would have promised eternal friendship with East Anglia. And yet, three years later, they've returned with an army and a plan to extort land and fealty out of the Eastern Kingdom. Clearly, their word wasn't worth anything. And if Edmund took them up on the deal, it probably wouldn't be all that long before they made even further demands. I can absolutely see why Edmund would have balked at the offer. I think I would have too. And so, the Chronicle tells us that King Edmund raised an army. He backed down in the name of peace last time, and it had cost his kingdom dearly. So this time, he would fight. On November 20th, 869, King Edmund and the men of East Anglia met King Ivor and the great heathen army in battle. And it was a bloodbath. The East Anglians were defeated. King Edmund died in battle, and East Anglia was conquered. The great army subsequently wintered in their new kingdom, holding the territory of Thetford. And notably, this is the first time that the Chronicle reports of an Anglo-Saxon king being conquered by the Danes. Not even Northumbria was discussed as a conquest. It's not clear why that distinction was made in the record, but it's certainly interesting. Following his death, King Edmund was quickly venerated as a saint and martyr. And within a hundred years, Barry's St. Edmund's was dedicated to him and his relics. So that's the story of how St. Edmund the Martyr died. And it's probably not the story you've heard before. There's a much more popular story that floats around. And rather than giving you a summary of it, I'll just read to you what Aelfric of Einsham has to say. Quote, King Edmund, against whom Ivor advanced, stood in his hall, and mindful of the Savior, threw out his weapons. He wanted to match the example of Christ, who forbade Peter to win the cruel Jews with weapons. Lo, the imperious one then bound Edmund, and insulted him ignominiously, and beat him with rods, and afterwards led the devout king to a firm living tree, and tied him there with strong bonds, and beat him with whips. In between the whiplashes, Edmund called out with true belief in the Savior Christ. Because of his belief, because he called Christ to aid him, the heathens became furiously angry. They then shot spears at him, as if it was a game, until he was entirely covered with their missiles, like the bristles of a hedgehog, just like St. Sebastian was. When Ivor the imperious pirate saw that the noble king would not forsake Christ, but with resolute faith called after him, he ordered Edmund beheaded, and the heathens did so. While Edmund still called out to Christ, the heathen dragged the holy man to his death, and with one stroke struck off his head, and his soul journeyed happily to Christ. End quote. So, that's quite a different account. And one that sounds a hell of a lot like Jesus, as well as the accounts of multiple saints, including St. Sebastian. And despite the presence of a contemporary record that tells of how King Edmund died in battle, and despite subsequent records that speak of the cause for the fight, there's still this persistent myth that's perpetuated regarding St. Edmund the Martyr, and how he died a grisly, torturous death at the hands of the Danes because of his piety. 
And here's where Abo, our friend who gave us the indication that Ivor was looking to make Edmund a sub-king, kind of lets us down. Because Avo says that Edmund didn't meet the Danes in battle, but rather he abstained from war and wanted to die a martyr's death. And that would seem to fit within the martyrdom story that popped up a century after Edmund died. On the other hand, it's a tough pill to swallow, because despite the fact that Abo claims he got it from a very good source, Abo was writing a hundred years later. And he was writing at a time when martyr stories were really common. And by the time he started writing, there was already a cult venerating Edmund and attesting to his saintly martyrdom. So you can kind of guess where he got the idea. And I want to say it again because this is really important for this analysis. There are precisely no contemporary records for Edmund's martyrdom. The contemporary records, meaning the records that were recorded at the time of Edmund's death, are really clear. And they say that he died in battle. And I can hear you asking, if Abba was wrong about this, why do you trust what he had to say about Ivor's motivations about seeking Imperium? You've taught us that records aren't a salad bar where you can just take some parts and leave the rest. But rather, if there are falsehoods in the record, they need to be looked at alongside the things that seem to be true. And yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I'm glad you've been paying such close attention. But here's my thinking on this. The contradiction to the contemporary record definitely throws some doubt on Abo's statements regarding the prelude to war. But we also have some additional support for those statements in the archaeological record. And his statement also fits with other records of how the Danes were trading other kingdoms. As a consequence, his comments about the motivations aren't just hanging out there in the breeze like a bold lone statement. For example, following the conquest of East Anglia, some coins appear in the numismatic record that show Kings Athelred and King Oswald, who seem to be East Anglian. And these coins date from the period after Edmund's death. So suddenly we have Kings Athelred and Oswald of East Anglia minting coins, which would have been after East Anglia was already dominated by the Danes. And that suggests that Ivor carried out his plan and found some puppet rulers, similar to what he had done in Northumbria. Furthermore, Abo's statement about how Ivor wanted to partition East Anglia is really key to this whole thing. We're going to see the Danes doing this repeatedly. The temptation when talking about this era is to see it as a great conquest by the Danes. And it certainly is portrayed that way in many cases. But that doesn't appear to have been what was happening. Rather the Danish expansion appears to have had a lot more in common with the Mercian hegemonies that were developed earlier in British history by Penda, Offa, and others. Many times, they would defeat areas and create sub-kingdoms that would be ruled by client kings. So Abo talking about how that was Ivor's plan fits completely within what was happening. Furthermore, there's no contradictory evidence that says Ivor wasn't looking to create an East Anglian sub-kingdom. Consequently, I find Abo's statement about Ivor's plan to be rather convincing. As for the rest of what Abo had to say about Edmund's death, we have a contemporary account of King Edmund dying in battle, and this story of martyrdom only came out after more than a century had passed, and after a cult had already formed to venerate him. So, I wonder if Abo's source 
who was a guy named Dunstan, might have been influenced by the growing cult surrounding St. Edmund. And then other writers elaborated on the tale. As we have spoken about before, memories are not all that reliable. Given the choice, I'll go with the bits that have confirmation in the contemporary writings and archaeological record. But something else to keep in mind is that the story doesn't make much sense on a cultural level either. Renunciation of other gods wasn't really a major theme for the northern Germanic people. The Christians were the ones who had a prohibition against other gods. Depending on your sect, it's either the first or second commandment. It's right up there, before even murder. But that wasn't the case if you were, say, a follower of Odin. So would Ivor and Ubba really care what god King Edmund worshipped? Probably not. That's a story that would make perfect sense to a Christian audience, because it's speaking their language of exclusivity. But it probably would have been baffling to the Northmen. Think about it like this. There are some sects of Christianity who accuse the Jewish people of being devil worshippers. Which is funny, because the devil is a Christian concept, not a Jewish one. There is no overt concept of a devil in Judaism. It's probably a bit like that. Or maybe like a bunch of vegans telling the story of how Gandhi was ritually killed by the employees of McDonald's because he refused to eat a Big Mac. The point is that these stories only make sense if you assume that everyone places as much importance upon diets, the devil, or being in an exclusive relationship with Jesus as you do. And let's be honest, if McDonald's employees really cared about what people were eating, they wouldn't be serving McDonald's food. So my guess is that we're looking at a boatload of projection here. However, there's a rub. There's always a rub with stuff like this. According to some versions of the Chronicle, after defeating the East Anglian army, the Danes overran the kingdom and looted the monastery at Medhamstead. And that does seem pretty religiously motivated at first. And don't forget that the Danes had already shown that they were just as prepared to fight this war on a propaganda level as the West Saxons were. And they were also prepared to do things to break their rival's spirit, like taking important political or spiritual locations. So striking a monastery would make sense in that context. But before you get all excited and say, aha, they were targeting Christians. Maybe there was also a royal hedgehog of East Anglia. There's something important that you need to know. Archaeological evidence has shown that by the time the great heathen army was in Britain, Medhamstead had already come under lay lordship, with large parts of it being rebuilt and fortified for personal use by the Lord. It's similar to other stories of religious houses, like nunneries and monasteries, where they were claimed to have been destroyed by Vikings, only to have later been revealed to have declined due to a lack of patronage or land seizures by nobles, or just bad economics. I mean, why admit that your monastery fell apart because the local lords are jerks, or because the abbot was embezzling, when you can just blame the pagans? So, while some versions of the Chronicle might have you believe they are targeting religious houses, and while that might make you assume there is a spiritual element to this fight, I really wouldn't take it as an absolute fact. Frankly, I find it to be unlikely. Given the evidence, I believe it was more likely that they were simply targeting poorly defended repositories of wealth, which is what monasteries were. 
After all, it seems Medhamston wasn't even really religious at this point, and that was specifically singled out by the chroniclers. So this might just be spin, designed to whip up support for the throne of Wessex. It's also possible that the Danes were looting the countryside in general, and not specifically targeting religious houses, but the religious writers decided to focus on the religious institutions. Because, you know, that's what mattered most to them. I mean, if some of my friends were writing an account of television in 2003, you would probably think that the only thing of consequence that happened on that year was that Firefly got cancelled. Because that was what mattered most to them at the time. But keep in mind, that's the same year that the U.S. invaded Iraq. An author's perspective matters. So, like always, this period is a soupy mess when it comes to the historical record. But considering that even the Chronicle, with all its spin, doesn't mention Edmund dying a martyr's death, I'm thinking this whole, we're going to turn this guy into a pincushion because he loved Christ too much story, was probably just an attempt to jazz up the less-than-inspirational story of he refused to serve as a sub-king and died in battle. So, there you have it. King Edmund is dead. Possibly because he refused to stop singing he's got the whole world in his hands, but probably not. And now, East Anglia has fallen. And then the Chronicle tells us that after wintering in East Anglia, the great heathen army returned north to Jorvik. And we also get this odd account by Athelweird. Now, Athelweird was writing a century later, so right from the start, we're going to have some issues. But he tells us that one year after Edmund's death, in 870, Ivor the Boneless died. But here's the problem with that. According to the Irish records, on 870, which was that same year, Ingwar returned to Ireland and continued to cause problems there for another three years before dying in 873. And critically, there's no mention that he was a zombie at the time. So perhaps Athelweird got his accounts mixed up, and Ivor simply left England in 870 and returned to Ireland, rather than dying on that year. That's what many scholars believe happened. Whatever the case, as far as the Anglo-Saxons were concerned, even though both East Anglia and Northumbria had fallen to his forces, the Anglo-Saxon troubles with Ivor the Boneless were finally over. But that didn't mean that their troubles with the Danes were at an end. They were just getting started. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow us at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other social media platforms at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.